Hello again, everyone. So today I get to preach to everybody, and I have the privilege of doing that, and it's uh, a pretty wild feeling coming up here. Uh, whenever I walk up here, there's always an expectation you have when you go up to talk to people versus the reality of how things are actually going to be, right? We, that's a, a concept that I think anyone can understand when they're uh, prepping themselves for some sort of service or opportunity, and then they uh, get to it, and it's suddenly very different than what they expected. Our, uh, how we uh, gauge things in that scope is uh, something that is, well, very normal in our lives. And to start, I wanted to share a story with you that really highlights this central concept of Scripture that we will be walking through, and that is the idea of expectation versus reality. So, uh, my brother Chris has somewhat recently become quite the adventurer. He's a very intelligent guy. He's worked on self-driving vehicles and is currently working in coding and robotics, but in the last few years, he took up the hobby of backpacking. And for anyone who has been uh, backpacking, they, they know that there's a few things you need to make sure to grab, and one of them is bear mace, which is just glorified pepper spray for bears. And when you go, uh, and when you get bear mace, they give you, there's a bunch of warning signs on it, and a special little plastic clip to keep it closed, and you know the cashier is obligated to make you sign a waiver and might show you a picture of a bear and tell you to, I don't know, aim for the head, right? But it's a very general and brief warning. And I would argue it gives the buyer a pretty false perception of how a bear encounter usually goes. So, back to my brother. My brother went on a weekend solo backpacking trip up into the mountains, and about halfway in, he notices he's out of water, and he makes his way to a nearby creek through some tall grass to get a refill. And so he leans down and gets his water, and he's getting back up, and he turns around, looks up, and maybe 10 feet away from him, a grizzly bear pops its head out of the tall grass. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, it didn't like that my brother was that close, so it stood up on its hind legs. And so I asked my brother what he was thinking in that moment, and he said his thoughts were a mixture of very colorful language and prayer, and I'm going to die, this is cool, I'm going to die, repeatedly. And uh, of course he got out of the situation safely, but you can see how the watered-down explanation and expectations of how a bear encounter would go was very minimalized compared to the reality of what happened. No one could have prepared him for the emotion and adrenaline that, that took place. No one could have prepared him for the reality of the circumstance. And when he was talking to me, one of the phrases he said stuck out to me. And he said, you realize just how powerless you are when you're faced with something so powerful and overwhelming that your life depends on its decision. And I thought, man, this is great sermon material. No, but uh, it's actually a great analogy for scripture that we'll be looking at today, which is Hebrews chapter one, verses five to 14. And this scripture talks a lot about how we should perceive Jesus, the Son of God, because in reality our expectations and our presuppositions of Jesus is so often very different from the reality of who he really is. 
right? We may read the Bible and the gospel message or hear it from here and there a hundred times and it can perhaps start to feel mundane or simplified, right? It's sort of like that simple explanation of a bear encounter, but the reality is very, very different. See, we put a frame a damper or a constraint on Jesus, and in doing so, we miss the reality that Jesus is greater than we can imagine. And Andrew shared with us last week about how Jesus is the greatest of all time, that he is the creator, the radiance of God's glory, the sustainer, the savior, the authority, and more. And it is this mentality of Jesus that I want us to step into our scripture with today. So in regards to Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14, it reads, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds, his servants, flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. They will, they will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. You remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? And so we're going to take this and walk through it piece by piece. In verse 5, we're actually going to glaze over a little bit and come back to. But an important part of verse 5 and the rest of the passage is almost completely taken as references from Old Testament scripture. And why this matters to us is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies and statements from the Old Testament. The beginning of our text on how Jesus is great is, is on how Jesus is great enough to fulfill Old Testament scripture. And so Hebrews 1, 6 to 7, I'm going to read it one more time. It says, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. And this is a quote from Psalm 104 verse 4, where it talks about how the angels were created by God and given the power to do his work uh, as servants of his. And this is written to have us associate that power with wind and fire, which is a way of showing God's authority over creation itself. 
He makes uh, his winds, uh, sorry, he makes, uh, sorry, what did, how did I write that here? Sorry, he, make, uh, he makes his ministers winds and flames of fire. That's what the verse says, right? And the imagery can give us some grandiose images of the angels. And in the Jewish culture at that time, there was actually a certain reverence for angels. They served as messengers. Many key events or announcements were made by angels. God's people uh, in some, uh, uh, to God's people, and in some contexts, the angels worshiped God and attended his throne, and there is a biblical examples of that, such as the angel appearing to Mary to inform her that she would be the parent, the mother of the Son of God. And Mary's reaction was to fall on the floor. The angel literally had to say, don't be afraid. But this active involvement and service to God can make us have servant, a certain reverence for them. But they are just fellow servants of God. In the midst of a vision in Revelations 22, 8 to 9, John is about to worship an angel for showing him through the vision. And the angel was horrified and literally said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of God. And this information is important to us because we can start to get a grip of Jesus' greatness. These angels, creatures that can instill fear simply by appearing and are given some of God's power are nothing compared to Jesus, and themselves are horrified at the idea of accidentally being worshipped instead of Jesus Christ, because he is so much greater than them. And that is where, in verse, uh, and we'll move on to verses 8 to 12, and we continue on, and it's a comparison of the angels to Jesus Christ. It says, uh, but about the sun, he says, your throne, O Lord, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. And it's important to note that this phraseology being repeated, that Jesus is the son and the firstborn, it says in verse 5, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, it says, I will be, uh, and he will be my son. And about the firstborn is what it says in verse 8, about the firstborn, it says, right? There's these ideas and this repeated phraseology of Jesus as the son and firstborn. And so we should ask, what does it mean for Jesus to be the firstborn son? And the main answer is that in the Old Testament time, 
there was a, uh, in that culture, there was a position of the firstborn, which was a prized and coveted title. There's actually a lot of biblical drama that comes from the effects of people holding this position as the firstborn son of a family. And this is because the person with the title held a special place in their father's heart. They shared in the father's authority and inherited property from the father. The firstborn was given the respect of the father. And so compare the honor given to the firstborn to that of the servants of the household, which where they're just in the background of the family's activity, and we remember that the angels are servants of God, and so we could get again see how Jesus, the Son of God, is so much greater than they. And in verse 8 and 9, there's, it's a reference to Psalm 45, 6, which, 6, which talks about the kingship of the Davidic line. And in this line, that God had, God had promised a perfect king would come out of it, a king like no other. We know that now, that, it is, that that is Jesus. But the other kings in this line fell short of God's expectations by falling to wickedness and sin, like falling into adultery or turning away from God. And there was a difference between earthly kings and Jesus. Jesus hated wickedness rather than craving it and falling to it like the other kings did. He was different. He lived a perfectly righteous life, and now it says in the text, righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. It goes on to say that uh, he's anointed with oil. In fact, he is above all others anointed with oil, which were priests and prophets and kings. He is not just another servant to God. He was greater than that, greater than kings and prophets and priests before him. He was greater than all of them because he was and is God. Now, verse 10 to 12, the contrast shifts from servants in Jesus to creator versus the created. In verse 10 and 12, I'm just going to read it one more time. It says, he also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Jesus has something that none of us have, and that is that he has been and will be eternal. But the eternal means more than we think because he has an eternal existence for sure, but his attributes are eternal. They're eternally present and unwavering. His love for us, his care, his grace, it is all part of his eternal and unchanging nature. And think of this eternal understanding in comparison to us. We change so much, we grow older, we grow more mature, you know, hopefully. Uh, our relationships change. We are loved by some and hated by others. The world feeds us inconsistency. But Jesus is consistent. 
We are finite, but he is infinite. Jesus' nature doesn't change. His eternality is greater than our morality. And the last verses, verse 13 to 14, say, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And these verses are a reference to Psalm 10, verses 2 and 3, and it shows us that Jesus has an active hand in ruling God's kingdom, and all of mankind are subject to his authority. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus will be victorious over his enemies because, again, he is unexplainably greater than they. And verse 12 speaks of those who will inherit salvation. Weaved into this narrative of Jesus' greatness is the message of salvation. Jesus, through his life, his death on the cross and resurrection, gives the believer the gift of salvation, of eternity with Jesus Christ, the greatest of all time. This Jesus that is so much greater than any created being once relationship with us and died for our sins so that we could spend eternity with him. And so a question I would like you to ponder is in what ways have you minimized Jesus? Have you simplified him? into a free ticket to heaven? Have you forgotten the price of your redemption? Have you forgotten what it means that Jesus paid for your sins? Have you to some degree forgotten that you desperately and seriously need Jesus? In reality, for us, we should have the same realization for Jesus that my brother did when a bear stood up in front of him. In which he said, you realize just how powerless you are when you're faced with something so powerful and overwhelming that your life depends on its decision. So, we're about to sing a song called, Lord, I Need You. And if you feel that in some way you have stepped away from God or you aren't sure if you believe in God but want to take a leap of faith and come into a relationship with Jesus Christ today, I encourage you to sing this song knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ Almighty loves you so desperately and a relationship with him is greater than you could ever imagine, just like how by nature he is. Let's pray together. 
Lord, you are great and powerful and awe-inspiring and loving and caring and gracious. God, you, are, you fill spaces that we never could. You're eternally consistent for us, even when we are inconsistent to you, Lord. And so, God, I just want to thank you for your greatness and praise you for your greatness, oh, God. And thank you that you died on a cross for our sins, that your son Jesus died because of the great love he has for us. The greatest of all time loves us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.